Weiler. I'm Forrest Coleman. And I'm Erica Senor. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Egle Chikanavichute, a fifth-year graduate student in Marion Buckwalter's lab. Thanks for joining us today, Egle. Thank you for inviting me. How impressed with Nick are you about the pronunciation of your name? Extremely, I must say. I can even spell it. I am it. too. That's my fun party trick. So do you know this girl, Egle? I can spell her name. So, Egle, we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. Can you describe what it is and how you make it? Okay, so it is Sazerac. And it has rye whiskey and bitters and, most importantly, absinthe. And it's my connection to the wonderful southern cuisine, which is my favorite cuisine in the world. Plus, half of my family now is from the south as well. And I especially like the city of New Orleans. So here we go. Sazerac, you started with a rye. There's a generous helping of rye. Then you add some uh, simple syrup, which is apparently really here just to cut everything else that is very bitter and very alcoholic. Then you add some bitters. Then you add as much absinthe as you want. And I made uh, Sazeracs for all three of you today and gave you about a teaspoon worth of absinthe each. And I am going to get about two tablespoons worth of absinthe <laughs> for myself because I love this stuff. And it will help me get inspired. This is your European roots coming out. Yep. And then finally, you add some lemon, lemon twist. There we go. Some more lemon. Then you finish with ice. Okay. Good. Here we go. Here's the proper Sazerac. Cheers. 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 Thank you. Mm. How is that? Absinthe enough? Excellent. Excellent. Perfect amount of absinthe. <laughs> so when we were in New Orleans for SFN this past year, was this the first time you had a Sazerac? Uh, it was the first time I had a Sazerac, yes. Uh-huh. And I loved it. So does it remind you of New Orleans now every time you drink it? Yes, and I really want to go back to New Orleans at some point. Mm. So, Egle, you've had quite a year. Mm-hmm. You got married in September. You received your green card this spring. You're uh-huh. graduating in the fall. You uh-huh. just accepted a postdoctoral position at Berkeley. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Particularly congratulations about the green card. It's extremely exciting. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in Lithuania and why you wanted to come to the U.S.? Basically, in Lithuania, I knew I wanted to do some sort of medicine or science. And so up to the year 2003, higher education was still extremely corrupt to the extent that you could actually bribe your professors in the university to get better grades or you would get better grades in the school of medicine if your parents were famous doctors. So I didn't like that. I didn't like the system and I still like the science. And I lucked out going to an international baccalaureate program where I learned everything basically based on the same curriculum that also exists in the U.S. And I really wanted to continue the same type of science learning based on experiments, based on coming up with your own questions, based on uh, doing a lot of independent work and a lot of lab work. So I really tried to get somewhere out of the country. 
And Lithuania wasn't EU yet, so I couldn't apply to UK or any other EU country where uh, most of Lithuanians go now. So instead, basically, my only chance was the US. And of course, I didn't have money for it. But luckily, if you get into a good enough and rich enough school in the US, they're going to cover you. So get full financial aid. So that's what I was betting on my first year when I applied right out of high school in my senior year of high school. And I didn't get in anywhere but full financial aid, which meant for me I couldn't go anywhere. So then I took a year off, which is how I described it in all of my college applications. Well, for me, it was going to School of Medicine in Lithuania and working as a teacher of chemistry and applying to 18 colleges. And yes, I finally got into some places, including Harvard, which gave me full ride, which was where I went eventually. But really, I was quite desperate, especially when I started going to School of Medicine and I realized that, oh, yes, it is every bit as corrupt as I was afraid it would be. So that's what I was trying to run away from. Can you imagine what your life would be like now had you stayed in Lithuania and continued in the medical school? I would probably be not be in Lithuania, actually. You can't imagine any scenario um, where you're I would probably Lithuania. have left sooner oh. or later. I was fairly determined. Uh-huh. I knew that if I wouldn't be able to leave for college, I would be able to leave as some sort of student exchange program. And we didn't know at that time that Lithuania would be in EU really soon. But in 2005, it joined the EU and I became citizen of the EU, basically treated in all the countries equally. So mm-hmm. I would have just left then. You've been sort of a, a polymath. I mean, you were on a, a team that dominated the competitive chemistry Olympiad in Lithuania for years. You went to Harvard, you worked in a neuroscience lab there, but you also studied archaeology and anthropology and Spanish. And then after college, you were admitted to Stanford's neuroscience program, but you took a year off to do social anthropology. In the Amazon, when you returned, you joined Marion Buckwalter's lab and you transformed into a neuroimmunologist. You've also been an extremely avid mentor and teacher. So you've done all of these things, and now you have said that you intend to make teaching a central part of your career. How do you keep all of this straight? And do these feel like competing interests or are they complementary in some way? They are competing until I test them one by one and then decide what I actually want to be my uh, main career. So at Harvard, I was a neuroscience major, Spanish citation, which is basically a minor. And I took every single class that I could take was a highish level anthro or archaeology because I really didn't know what to go to grad school for, neuroscience or anthro. Mm -hmm. So I figured I'd do this. I would apply for neuroscience, get in, defer admission for a year, and spend a year doing basically field research in social anthro, which is what I did by getting a grant from the same Harvard to work in Peru. After working there for a year, I decided I do not, in fact, want to do social anthro professionally. Because what's considered to be evidence is like not quite rigorous for my taste. I would much prefer to do, let's say, hard science with different uh, characteristics of uh, what's considered to be good evidence. And that's what I did. But I also fell in love with the idea of doing public health research. So I got myself to Stanford, deferred admission and everything. But my original plan at Stanford was to last two years, pass my quals, get a master's and leave and do public health. So I was pretty convinced about that. I'm always convinced about what I'm doing. It just changes. <laughs> so I was set on that. And also it would give me a visa and money, which is two things that I really needed the most to live anywhere, especially in the U.S., I guess, anywhere in the U.S., which is home anyway. 
then in about two years at Stanford, I realized that, oh, first of all, I really like doing science. And I especially realized that during my quals, because I actually enjoyed the whole preparation of writing your own proposal and uh, giving talks, giving practice talks, hearing questions from professors, being like, oh, my God, I can debate something. Mm-hmm. They can actually contribute it even a tiny bit to the discussion. And I liked it so much that uh, at the end of my quals, when I passed them, I was like, I don't want to do any public health. I want to stay here and spend spend my time talking about science and teaching science and writing about science and the grants or papers eventually. And then I started teaching and I really rediscovered my love of teaching science again. So what were you going to the Amazon to prove? There are two things. So what I was doing, I was basically studying the idea of uh, what's called a drug tourism, which is a lot of Western tourists go to the Amazon and they look for some sort of a shamanic enlightenment. And of course, there's plenty of all sorts of charlatans that are going to take the tourists and going to drug them out. Regardless of what kind of condition the tourists might have that would prevent them from taking large doses of hallucinogens, regardless of anything else, of even knowing what kind of plants to mix up and feed the poor tourists, and that turns out to be pretty dangerous. So the professor that I was working with, uh, somebody from UC Irvine, was writing a book about that and wanted me to go out and basically interview everyone from the charlatans to the sort of more real and local community shamans and healers to the tourists, which was extremely interesting. And all of that came into the book. But at the same time, I was reading a lot of books about social anthro. And it's really surprising the stuff that actually gets in there, which really includes mostly uh, personal experiences of uh, one anthropologist or another that are presented as the objective truth which I did not like. So to that end, how did you go into the Amazon and decide what was a charlatan shaman and a real shaman? Exactly. I did not like that. I mean, (laughs) I did not like that I was making that kind of decision and Uh then presenting it in somebody else's book, basically. So what did did you actually do? Did you you come up with a shaman test? In a way, I would actually talk to them about what they want in their in their ceremonies and what kind of questions they ask their clients and what kind of clients they have. Are they most of the tourists or are they most of their communities? And one of the interesting tests is that the real ones, the traditional uh, belief about, let's say, taking any kind of hallucinogenic drink is that your um, patient or client has no reason to take it. It's the shaman that has to take it so that they can talk to the basically to the relevant spirits and come up with the idea of how to heal the person. Now, if you have the patient take it, that's irrelevant. <laughs> basically, that doesn't tell the patient anything about their own disease. So that is something that obviously you would only find in the more authentic uh, indigenous community or mestizo community shamans, and you wouldn't really find it in the more touristic part because the more touristic part would be, uh, well, of course, we invite all kinds of tourists and we give them everything they want and then uh, we uh, build a giant center with uh, swimming pools and with hammocks outside. And I've totally seen all of those. Obviously. And then some tourists actually get into coma, which I've also seen happen, which was very interesting. So it's a there's there's a very there was a crazy adventure for a year, which was fantastic. But I really was missing a lot of more hard science. And I was missing the kind of questions that uh, biology can ask. And uh, I was really missing lab work, too. So. Mm-hmm. So would you consider doing a follow-up on your shaman studies in New Orleans? 
Uh, well, I did go to voodoo shops, of course, uh-huh. and, uh, um, you know, checked out the local. I'm still pretty interested in general in um, the concept of healing in different religions and cultures, mm-hmm. but I will certainly would never follow any of that. I just interested in a purely intellectual perspective. And yes, I did go to New Orleans and looked up the voodoo shops. It was very important. So you mentioned at the beginning that you initially were planning to leave Stanford with a master's and go into public health. Yep. Was it partially the teaching that, that convinced you to stay, at least short term? Well, it was a short term enjoyable part of what I was choosing. But in general, it was really the feeling of discussing science and coming up with new ideas for proposals. That's my favorite part. I don't really care about bench work. Somebody else can do the bench work as far as I'm concerned. I like to do everything else. The writing and the speaking and the presenting and the discussing of ideas. That's what I really like to do. How do you convey that same enthusiasm that you have to your students? I make them ask questions and come up with ideas. Mm -hmm. And it is not as easy as it may seem because you can't exactly stand in front of the classroom and say, so can you, can anybody here tell me what do you think, what in the circuit is wrong and gives a mouse epilepsy? You have a circuit on the board or something. No, everybody will look their hands at the floor, at the ceiling, wherever, except at you and will try very, very hard not to answer. Uh So you have to make them ask questions and come up with ideas. You have to say, okay, now I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk to your neighbor and then you will have to tell me what is wrong with the circuit that's on the board and how it would give a mouse epilepsy. That they immediately start talking and then you can start calling on them and then the discussion starts. So that's part of it. Uh-huh. The other part is enthusiasm is contagious. Uh-huh. If you care about your subject and you actually are outgoing, you can really charm up your audience to some degree. And it's really important try to tie it to something very realistic, basic kind of if you if there's a disease, tell them some story about a disease. Um, I was giving a genetics talk in San Jose State about Huntington's, so about Huntington's disease gene. And basically one of the crazy inter- most interesting stories is how Huntington was discovered in the small community in Venezuela and you immediately start talking about the discovery story and basically what it meant to the community and what it meant to the rest of the scientific world and that's when you get the feeling that everybody in the room is actually listening to you. So what's been the most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself or about students from the teaching experience that you've had? So in a way, a really surprising thing that I learned about myself is just how much I enjoy it. Uh And I couldn't really find good words to describe how I feel when I'm actually teaching students, when I'm standing in front of the class and I'm actually teaching, especially that feeling when sometimes you really get it, that when all eyes are on you, when you can rule the classroom based on your next words and your next intonation, your tone of voice, your pauses, and you can just feel everybody's just focused on you, that whole energy. And then I was recently at this random barbecue talking to this teacher. She was a high school teacher that spent her whole life doing it. And she said, I feel complete. And that's exactly how I feel. I feel complete when I'm standing in front of the classroom. Like this is all that I have been training to do. And that was kind of a surprising realization, just how much I care about it and how much I actually enjoy it and how much I take from it. That Mm -hmm. when no matter what happens in my life, if I'm going to teach, I'm going to be there and deliver. It's interesting to see how the students work with each other and what kind of encouragement they need. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you need to basically get this, get to know the student personally, perhaps talk to them about something completely irrelevant, their football team or their family or something, and then they are going to be more likely to participate. And uh, sometimes you have to uh, 
separate the students and make them work with each other, not necessarily because they're close as friends that they would always sit next to each other, but you actually forcefully mix them up, make them talk to new people, make them come up with new ideas. Making everybody talk is always a challenge and it's always exciting when you succeed in doing that because there are always people that think they don't have anything to say, which is generally not true. They have plenty to say. They just Mm -hmm. wouldn't do it. And that's something that I really try to learn how to do better. And uh, I've been practicing by uh, teaching this undergrad class. And I can tell that the third year I've been teaching it, everything just went much more smoothly and I think was much more enjoyable for the students as well as for um, the instructors than the first year we were teaching it. So I'm curious, given how interested you are in mentorship and teaching yourself, who have been some of the most influential mentors in your own life, in your own career? Hmm, That's a very good question. I had a fantastic biology teacher in high school. Uh-huh. She was a university professor who decided that the students that are coming to the university don't get good enough biology training. So she became a teacher. She became international baccalaureate teacher, the only first and so on in Lithuania. And uh, um, she just really gave herself to the job and made us do all kinds of crazy experiments, made us do tons of lab work, made us work in teams and made us everybody think, which is quite rare, especially in Lithuania, when you're thinking about learning natural sciences. A lot of it is memorization. The fact that I had to think for my four years of high school was amazing. And she accepted the fact that I was the only person in the whole school who wanted to learn biology at higher level in international baccalaureate class, which meant she had to give me two extra lessons every week just to me I was the only student and she wasn't getting paid extra because she didn't have enough students so I was the only student and she just did it and it was wonderful there was one time when we had some sort of a heating problem it was winter in Lithuania and we were just sitting in the classroom and uh, we made uh, tea in the beaker on a hot plate and uh, (laughs) covered ourselves in a lot of sweaters and we're just sitting in front of the hot plate and you know reading about I think something like uh, epigenetics Uh from the textbook and it was really amazing and that is somebody that really inspired me to be that kind of a mentor to the next set of students i think we should move on to our game this is a game that we are calling not my field Um, and we are going to read you the titles of three papers one of which is a real paper the other of two we entirely made up okay so let's begin all right question number one Option A, men who watched Star Wars as children are more likely to be biased against the obese. (laughs) Mate choice in pigs as a function of diet. A comparative meta-analysis of garbage consumption. That's option two. Uh Option three, the role of auditory cues in modulating the perceived crispness and staleness of potato chips. One of these three is a real study. Star Wars. Star Wars. You think Star Wars? A? Uh-huh. Option A? Okay. Well, let me read you a little bit of the abstract. We investigated whether the perception of the crispness and staleness of potato, <laughs> chips, <laughs> potato chips can be affected by modifying <laughs> the sounds produced during the biting action. All right. So question two. So this is option A. Shape of a ponytail and the statistical physics of hair fiber bundles. Option uh-huh. B. Distributions of topological parameters of randomly occurring knots suggest a common formation mechanism in both electrical wiring and spaghetti. Or option C, a new approach to studying feline night vision, the wall bump test. <laughs> um, oh, God. Okay. So hair bundles or knots or uh, uh, clumsy cats. Um, <laughs> hair bundles? All right, I'll read you from the abstract of the real paper. 
Uh, a general continuum theory for the distribution of hairs in a bundle is developed, treating individual Aha! fibers and elastic filaments with random intrinsic curvatures, applying this formalism to the iconic problem of the ponytail. Wow, that is a that's serious amazing. Paper I am quite glad I don't wear my hair in a ponytail because now <laughs> I would be thinking exactly what is happening in there. Compressibility. <laughs> okay, so our third set of titles. So, so finally, at the moment, you are at one question correct. One mm-hmm. question wrong. Let's see. This is for the game. Okay. So, A, does garlic protect against vampires? An experimental study. <laughs> or B, a quantitative study of optimum fruit consumption for health benefit. Is one a day really enough? Or C, ah shucks, evidence of a correlation between oyster consumption and sexual history. Wow. Okay. Let's see. A uh, fruit? The one a day really enough? Well, this is a bit of a trick question, I'm afraid. Um, from the abstract, vampires are feared everywhere, but the Balkan region has been especially haunted. <laughs> Garlic has been regarded as an effective prophylactic <laughs> against vampires. We wanted to explore this alleged effect experimentally. Owing to the lack of vampires, we used leeches instead. <laughs> <laughs> it was like vampire bats, but they don't. So they, they did some very careful experiments, and they concluded that the traditional belief that garlic has a prophylactic properties is probably wrong. The verse, reverse may be, in fact, be true. The leeches, in fact, preferred the garlic hand to the non-garlic hand. And, uh, and the study indicates that garlic is possibly attracted to blood-sucking um, organisms, and therefore, uh, to avoid a Balkan-like development in Norway, restrictions on the use of garlic should be considered. <laughs> this is in the Brilliant. Norwegian journal, uh, Tidsker Nor Ligeforen. I absolutely love that. I hope it wins the Ig Nobel Prize this year. <laughs> All right. Well, you got one question out of our three. Not enough to win our prize, of which there is none. Um, uh, but it will okay. have to be next time. <laughs> so actually, we've been talking about a lot of really interesting things about your teaching and your history and how you got to where you are. But can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've been doing into how astrocytes regulate the brain's immune response following stroke? Okay, so I will start with why would we bother studying how to regulate the immune response in the brain? And the point is that when you have a stroke or any kind of injury or even brain infection, some cells um, will die because of that initial insult. You got hit on the head, your blood vessel bursts, you got infected with a parasite. Those are going to kill some cells. Those dead cells have to be removed from the brain to make the remaining cells fare better. That's what the inflammatory response does. Now, the problem is that inflammatory response also can go haywire and start killing the remaining living cells, which happens about the first, let's say, the time period of days to weeks after the insult, after the initial injury, and can do a whole lot of damage to the brain. So it's necessary, but it has to be contained and limited. And the brain has some idea about how to contain and limit the immune response. After all, after stroke, we don't have the whole brain um, horribly inflamed. It's just the region around stroke. And it doesn't go on for the rest of the person's life. It goes on for a couple of weeks. But in fact, the inflammation still is generally too strong and could be limited even further to help the patient. Now, if you study how brain limits the inflammation, we can use the mechanisms that are already exist in the brain to find ways to help this process of limiting inflammation that would help the patient recover better. So you want to harness the tools the brain already right. has for limiting that inflammation. That is really important because instead of trying to just incl- introduce something completely novel in the brain, it is well, it's also interesting from the basic science perspective, how does brain limit inflammation? But it is much easier and uh, has a potential of much fewer 
fewer side effects if you are using the tools and the mechanisms that, that the brain already has. So if the basic idea is that you want to sort of turn down this inflammatory response, right. why has our brain developed a sort of overreaction? Well, some of these insults would generally lead to the organism dying. So sort of there's no good evolution based on that. It's just people don't die now. For example, a lot of what happens in traumatic brain injuries is just people are surprisingly not dying now, so we have to figure out how to actually help them recover. And some of it is because the alternative would be far, far worse. So the brain probably sort of overdoes the inflammation. And it is fairly good in limiting the inflammation in terms of space, but it could still do better in limiting the inflammation in terms of time because it takes a while for some, let's say, pro-inflammatory response to go down and anti-inflammatory response to go up. And the way that the brain is constructing a lot of the anti-inflammatory response is usually combined with something called scarring. So if you can imagine scarring on anywhere else in the body, that also happens in the brain. And the same process, the same pathways regulate both a reduction of inflammation and increase in scarring, which is actually a problem because excessive scarring then prevents, let's say, new neurons from uh, sending out the processes. What so it's actually of, pretty bad. What kind of scarring are you talking about? I'm talking mostly about astrocytic scarring. So astrocytes are sort of auxiliary brain cells, that, which are the ones that I'm studying, which are connected to the neurons, connected to vasculature, connected to inflammatory cells, so can actually regulate multiple systems at the same time time and that there are more anti-inflammatory properties are usually combined with forming a scar. And the anti-inflammatory properties are good. The forming a scar properties are pretty bad. Can we find a signaling that would deal with their anti-inflammatory properties but would not affect the scarring? So that's exactly the type of signaling that turned out to be the signaling that I study, which is this one specific cytokine, so a signaling molecule that tells astrocytes to limit the inflammation, to prevent it from spreading to healthy brain areas in either or infection, but does not affect the scar formation, does not increase the scar formation very usefully, because that means inflammation will be down and new neurons can still grow because they won't be impeded by a scar. I'm looking at the specifically the inflammation part of that signaling, and we take it out in a mouse model, and we see that mice are abnormally inflamed. Let's say they have a particularly bad inflammation, given the same insult as the wild-type mice, another stroke or infection. And that makes them fare worse because excessive abnormal inflammation kills a lot of extra brain cells and makes the recovery worse. So it is sort of proving making the mouse fare worse when you take something out, but then you know that that something is, in fact, a useful mechanism. And then, of course, the idea is how to use that very same mechanism to help a patient. So one of the ideas is to sort of get a sense of the separate functions that these immune cells and astrocytes have and be able to separately regulate them based on what you think is going to be the Absolutely. most helpful. And also figure out when it is important, so what timing we're talking about, because perhaps the way to regulate inflammation really is to cut it shorter, to make it shorter. So you want it to be as strong as it is already, but you want it to end you know, at 24 hours rather than 72 hours after a stroke, something like that, because by 24 hours, all the dead cells are gone already, maybe. This not precisely true, but you can imagine it as a simplification. But all the bad effects of the excessive inflammation are not quite there yet. How to make the system, sort of tweak the system to the optimal levels of recovery. All right. So I think that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Egla. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Forrest Coleman, Erica Seigneur, and myself, with production help from Leslie Chang. Special thanks to KZSU Studio at Stanford, where this program was recorded. 
For more information about Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website at neuritewest.stanford.edu, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, West. <laughs> Thanks for the sound effect. <laughs> I tried. <laughs>